Radio Mano Papachango. Brian, I'm coming to you from the Bolivian Amazon, where I'm here with my girlfriend and my sister and our environmental nonprofit that I recently started up. Uh, this is our first international project where we're building a research station uh, and doing a tree planting program uh, deep in the Aquacana Reserve to help protect and strengthen this this part of the world. Uh, I wanted to share with you my experience. Uh, I'm coming out of uh, an ayahuasca ceremony, uh, one of five. And the night before our, our aya ceremony, uh, our shaman gave us some tobacco and he instructed us to remember our dreams and take our dream of that night into our first Aya ceremony. And uh, I couldn't remember anything from the dream, but I remembered that you were in it. And when I woke up, that was the only thing. Uh, so I've been traveling the world for a number of years now, and I've always wanted to do one of these recordings for the podcast. Uh, and I felt like this was the perfect one. So... I want to say thank you to everything that you're doing. Uh, I want to say thank you to all your listeners. I have a lot of love for all of humanity right now. And I appreciate your insight into the human psyche and your insight into the evolution of, of the species. Uh, so thank you very much. I love you all. And keep doing what you're doing, man. God damn, Brian, thank you for that. I'm honored to be in your dream, especially a tobacco, ayahuasca, Amazon jungle dream. <clears throat> um, yeah, that's amazing. What an honor. This episode is uh, is an interesting one. This, this guy's name is Dave Pell. He... Strangely, I seem to be the only person who didn't know who Dave Pell was, but uh, he's got a newsletter that everybody reads. It's crazy. Uh, if you go to nextdraft.com, you'll see a bunch about the newsletter. Um, he basically reads, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 um, websites every day, and he sort of gleans what he thinks are the most important and interesting stories. And he does it with great intelligence and uh, a very sharp sense of humor. And that's what I really appreciate about it. Uh, I've been reading it since I found out about it a month or so ago. And uh, it's become my essential go-to thing that comes into my inbox every morning. And uh, I feel like we're in this time where we need to be so careful about our information diet. Uh, there's so much crap that we're being fed. 
And so somebody who performs a service like this and does it with a sense of humor and, uh, and uh, discernment is, uh, is really doing something special. He's got a book coming out about the crazy year that we uh, lived last year called Please Scream Inside Your Heart. Uh, I think we'll look back on 2020 as a year in which history began uh, a sharp pivot. I'm not sure exactly what we're pivoting toward. You know, when we're in the midst of a revolution, we rarely know that we're in the midst of a revolution or or what we're revolving toward. But um, clearly something is afoot. Some crazy shit is happening. The Washington Post just came out with a in-depth analysis of the January 6th insurrection. And uh, it's pretty devastating. And I, I keep, and, and meanwhile, the, what is it called? The, the latest um, get-together of world leaders talking about, you know, the empty promises they're making about environmental change is underway and I think it's in Scotland this time I read this morning that uh, 400 private jets flew into that um, meeting to talk about the evils of unrestrained capitalist energy carbon footprint growth yeah good luck with that guys I keep finding myself in this strange place where I'm wishing things were worse so that they could start getting better. It's a weird place to be, but I feel like intellectually it, it's and emotionally it's where I find myself so often. Um, Stephen Donzinger, who was on the podcast a couple of months ago, uh, you may remember him. He defended indigenous people in the Amazon against oil companies, won a huge judgment, billions of dollars against the oil companies. And instead of paying it, they hired teams of lawyers and private investigators and every kind of dirty trick artist they could find to discredit Stephen, to undermine the prosecution and to scare anyone who may think about doing something similar in the future. Stephen's been under house arrest for, I think, almost three years. And um, interestingly, the Justice Department declined to prosecute him. So what happened was they came up with these charges. They claimed that he had uh, uh, ghostwritten someone's testimony. And he, you know, they came up with all these things. And then they said, okay, we need your computer and your phone in order to investigate this and he said no I'm a fucking lawyer I can't give you my phone and my computer because that contains private protected communications with my clients pretty basic legal shit the justice department said well we're not going to prosecute this this is stupid and so Chevron hired a legal firm to prosecute Stephen. I didn't even know this was fucking possible. I thought it was the government versus 
whoever committed a crime, allegedly. But apparently, this is the first corporate prosecution ever. So a company can hire a fucking private law firm to prosecute you for something, even if the government doesn't want to be involved. What the fuck is that? Anyway, this judge, Judge Preska, who has worked with Chevron in the past, sentenced Stephen to six months in prison. Prison for contempt of court. No lawyer has ever been sentenced to prison for contempt of court, much less three years of house arrest. But in his last email before he drove himself to prison, supposedly he's a flight risk, this guy, this Harvard-trained lawyer with a family. He's a flight risk. They're afraid he's going to like fly off and live in the Amazon, I guess, for the rest of his life or something to avoid prosecution. So he has to go to prison. Uh, so he got in a car, drove himself to prison, this flight risk. And in his last email, before he uh, checked in, he framed this as the beginning of things getting better. That for the first time in three years, he can go to bed at night without... Uh, uh, what are they called? The the fucking ankle bracelet. Um, you know, it's a bed in prison, um, but hey, at least he doesn't have the ankle bracelet. And I don't know. Anyway, the point is things need to get bad, really bad before they start getting better. Alcoholics always talk about how you have to hit rock bottom. So somebody's got a drinking problem or a drug problem or any other kind of addiction that they know in their heart is leading them to a bad place. I imagine there's some sort of eagerness to make it worse so that you'll hit rock bottom. If you're on your way down, if you're on your way to rock bottom and you want to get better, then I guess... You want to accelerate your descent so that you can start bouncing back as soon as possible. Does that make sense? It's a strange way to think about self-destructiveness as the first step towards self-preservation. But I kind of feel like that's where we are in the world right now. Like we know this shit isn't working. We know it's getting worse. We know it's going to get worse until it hits a point where we either drink ourselves to death with oil or it gets so bad that we give it up. But we're not going to give it up by a bunch of fucking private jets, 400 private jets flying into some resort in Scotland and a bunch of rich motherfuckers talking about pledges they're going to make to be carbon neutral by 2040. Fuck that. Fuck their pledges. We know what their pledges are worth. No, it's going to start to get better when Washington, D.C. is six feet underwater, when Wall Street is flooded, when the billionaires at Morgan Stanley 
can't get in the elevators because the machines have all burned out because of all the water in the basement. It's going to start to get better when Miami is underwater. Maybe. But I don't see how it's going to get better before then. Anyway, Dave Pell. Please scream inside your heart. He's interesting. He's funny. He's smart as fuck. I hope you enjoy this episode. I was looking for a a song to play that had political relevance. And uh, I was just sort of rummaging around in my song files. I'm old school. I don't do Spotify. I did it for a while. And I mean, I got all pissed off because it's like I'm paying money to listen to my own music. And the fucking Spotify thing can't even like do a random shuffle properly. It keeps playing the same hundred songs over and over, even though I uploaded like 5,000 songs or something. Um, So I just got like old grumpy man on that shit and uh, canceled it. So now I'm back to my, my old style and I prefer to pay the artists for their fucking music. I know Spotify's ripping them off. So when I hear something new that I like, I just go into iTunes and buy it old school dollar 29 a song. Yeah. Anyway, I was looking for stuff to, uh, something to play here that was relevant. And I came up with a few interesting options. There are a lot of political songs, obviously not as many as I would think, not as many new, I would think, you know, things are as crazy right now or crazier than they were in the mid sixties. Where's all the political songs? Where's the Dylan? Where's the Beatles? Where's the Gimme Shelter? Where Where is that shit? I don't know. It seems like there was an, uh, a sort of uptick in political messaging in the world of hip-hop and rap, but that's, you know, sort of faded out into the, you know, normal I love money, uh, I drink Cristal bullshit. Um, but in the early days of hip hop, it was very political, you know, NWA and fuck the police. And anyway, this song for me is one of the most deeply political songs I know. Uh, it's strangely reminds me of Alaska because I had this song on a cassette tape that I listened to in my Walkman when I was hitchhiking to Alaska in 1983, four. So I guess that's when it came out, uh, or maybe a year or two before then. It's called The Message, and it's by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, and it's talking about trying to live a life that's just fucking unsustainable. Here we are. Thanks for listening to another commercial-free episode of tangentially speaking Dave Pell check him out and uh, I will be back with you soon bye
It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. People pissing on the stage, you know they just don't care I can't take the smell, can't take the noise Got no money to move out, I guess I got no choice Rats in the front room, roaches in the back Junkies in the alley with the baseball bat I tried to get away, but I couldn't get far Cause a man with the tow truck repossessed my car Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge I'm trying not to lose my head <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes It makes me wonder how I keep from going under Standing on the front stoop, hanging out the window Watching all the cars go by, roaring as the breezes blow A crazy lady living in a bag Eating out of garbage pails, used to be a fag hag Such a dash to tango, skipped the life and dango A zircon princess seemed to lost her senses Down at the peep show, watching all the creeps So she could tell her stories to the girls back home She went to the city and got so, so, so diddy She had to get a pimp, she couldn't make it on her own Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. My brother's doing fast on my mother's TV. Says she watches too much. It's just not healthy. All my children in the daytime, Dallas at night. Can't even see the game or the Sugar Ray fight. The bill collectors, they ring my phone and scare my wife when I'm not home. Got a bum education, double-digit inflation. Can't take the train to the job. There's a strike at the station. Neon King Kong standing on my back. Can't stop to turn around. Broke my sacroiliac. A mid-range migraine cancer membrane. Sometimes I think I'm going insane. I swear I might hijack a plane. Don't push me. Cause I'm close to the edge I'm trying not to lose my head It's like a jungle sometimes It makes me wonder how I keep from going under It's like a jungle sometimes It makes me wonder how I keep from going under Cause the teacher's a jerk, he must think I'm a fool And all the kids smoke reefer, I think it'd be cheaper If I just got a job, learn to be a street sweeper I dance to the beat, shut for my feet Wear a shirt and tie and run with the creeps Cause it's all about money, ain't a damn thing funny You got to have a con in this land of milk and honey They pushed that girl in front of the train Took her to the doctor, sewed her arm on the game Stabbed that man right in his heart Gave him a transplant for a brand new start I can't walk through the park cause it's crazy after dark Keep my hand on my gun cause they got me on the run I feel like an outlaw, broke my last glass jaw Hear them say you want some more living on a seesaw Don't push me cause I'm close to the edge I'm trying not to lose my head Say what? It's like a jungle sometimes It makes me wonder how I keep from going under It's like a jungle sometimes It makes me wonder how I keep from going under 
like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. A child is born with no state of mind, blind to the ways of mankind. God is smiling on you, but he's frowning too, because only God knows what you'll go through. You'll grow in the ghetto, living second rate, and your eyes will sing a song of deep hate. The places you play and where you stay looks like one great big alleyway. You'll admire all the number book takers, thugs, pimps, and pushers, and the big money makers. Jobbing big cars, spending 20s and 10s, and you want to grow up to be just like them. <laughs> Smugglers, scramblers, birds. Burglars, gamblers, pickpocket peddlers, even panhandlers. You say, I'm cool, I'm no fool. But then you wind up dropping out of high school. Now you're unemployed, all non-void. Walking around like your pretty boy Floyd. Turned stick-up kid, but look what you done did. Got sent up for an eight-year bid. Now your manhood is took and you're a make tag. Spend the next two years as an undercover fag. Being used and abused to serve like hell. To one day, you was found hung dead in the cell. It was plain to see that your life was lost. You was cold and your body swung back and forth. But now your eyes sing the sad, sad song of how you live so fast and die so young. So don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. <laughs> All right. I'm here with Dave Pell. Thank you, Dave. You're in Marin County. Is that right? Yeah, I'm in Sausalito. Sausalito. Sweet. That's nice. Um, the book is called Please Scream Inside Your Heart. Is this your first book? Uh, yeah, this is my, my first book. I've been actually meaning to write a book for about 30 years or so. <laughs> But yeah. uh, and yeah. usually late at night at about two in the morning, I come up with an idea over the last few decades. And I, the next morning, I wait, tell my wife what the idea was. And she sort of shakes her head and goes, nope, that's not it. You're not the right person to write that book. <laughs> and uh, during 2020, during the pandemic, when uh, all the news was becoming so overwhelming and almost impossible to follow and yet so meaningful for as we can see, 2021 and beyond, uh, I sort of came up with this idea of writing a book that sort of captured 2020 in a time capsule and used the sort of style I've been working on for about 20 years as a newsletter writer covering the news. And so this time I actually woke her up in, in bed and said, I think I've got it. And she looked at me pretty with a pretty upset face Uh, because of waking her and knowing that it would probably not be good. But she said, okay, that's it. And the next day I just started writing. Oh, wow. Great. Well, I, I hope the book gets the kind of reception that makes your wife wish she had given you the go ahead years earlier. <laughs> no, she was, she was right in those years earlier. So she's, she's rooting for <laughs> a, she? a good reception for sure. No, she was, she was right. And she was also my best editor. So, uh, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I think books are, are collaborative efforts. Even if only one person's name appears on the cover, there's always somebody that has your back. Otherwise you just, nobody's going to have the time or energy or self reliance to, to actually get it done. You know? Yeah. It's definitely, you need people around because it's such a long project and it often means you have to be doing your thing. while your family is doing their thing. 
Exactly. But uh, it's also good. I'm, I'm lucky. I have a lot of friends. Uh, unlucky in a way that a lot of friends I have are incredibly successful authors. So uh, the advice they give me is like, well, first do Anderson Cooper and then Terry Gross and then Howard Stern. And I'm like, all right, I'll, what, what next? But I also have, uh, you know, a lot of people who have given me a ton of feedback about navigating the publishing industry, uh, what yeah. to expect from editors, uh, how to get the cover you want and all these other stuff. So it's nice to sort of have a little crew that you can depend on. And also For just sure. to be reminded that you know, especially when you work on the internet your whole life, it sometimes feels like you're sort of screaming into a void. You know, you get emails, but mostly negative, let's be honest. And, uh, you know, you press send like I do on my newsletter and it just sort of goes out and then the rest of the day continues. So it's nice to have like a community of people that um, sort of give a shit about what you're doing so that you know uh, you know, they care about this little detail in a paragraph on page 142 that you care about, even if the average person is probably not going to notice it. So yeah. th that really has been helpful. And, and I think to the extent that people can build that when they do stuff online, like what you're doing now and what I do with my newsletter, it's really valuable because it's the internet gave us the ability to sort of be indies and go out there and connect with people on our own terms, which is incredibly powerful. Um, but it does get lonely every now and then. So it's nice to have a few people you can really count on, whether it's a book, whether it's a newsletter that you can say, hey, what do you think of this? And they're sort of on your side and they're with you every day, sort of like office workers or a team, you know? Uh, so it yeah. doesn't get, you don't get bummed out as much, I think, which can happen when you work do, alone. Yeah. I mean, do you ever feel like you're going backwards in terms of technology and distribution? Uh, you know, you're talking about you hit send and it's out there. You got like 160,000 readers or something, which is a big audience, you know, for a book that's a huge audience. Um, but you're now you're going back. It's almost like you're going from Spotify to printing vinyl or something. You know, it's you're it's like a relic in a way writing yeah. a book. It's interesting. I I actually have seen that trend over my years working on the internet that there's a lot of people who came up through the internet that wish they could do some print stuff. And there's a lot of people who um, are pretty well known writing for big news publishers who actually want to go out and do an indie thing. And we're sort of seeing that with Substack. There's obviously right. a lot of other factors, financial included, that are driving that. But no, every time I go into a bookstore, I've always wished that I could see a book of mine in there and that I, I thought I had that in me. Um, the hard part now is to sort of say, okay, that was always a goal. And now I'm going to have that goal on November 2nd. So that's totally awesome. But then you think, well, I also want these other 30 things, you know, it's sort of like if you train for a marathon, it's like, well, I didn't hit the time I wanted, but you, you had been training your whole life saying, if I could just complete a marathon, I'd feel pretty good about myself. But now I did it in 30 minutes too long or whatever. Uh, so therefore, I don't feel good about myself. So uh, I guess that's uh, part of the process also. But yeah, I've yeah. always wanted always wanted to be old school. If I could have any job, I would like to be a columnist for a, a newspaper. I don't know if you know, remember that show, 8 is Enough. Uh, the dad on that Vegas. show, yeah, the dad on that show was like a, a, a columnist in his town. And one day he'd write about like a very uh, important public issue. And the next day he'd write about something that, 
his son Tommy screwed up. I know this is old school, but uh, yeah, that always has been my dream job, actually, just to be like Herb Kane type of character who we used to have out here in the Bay Area. Uh, yeah, I remember her. Whatever Kane. the hell you want to write about. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and honestly, I mean, that's kind of what you're doing, right? I mean, there are a lot of people who have newsletters about, you know, here's what happened yesterday. Your style is what sets you apart. So people are reading a for your curation abilities, but also you have a very kind of light, quick on your feet uh, writing style that makes it enjoyable to read, even if it's depressing as hell. Oh, thanks a lot. You just basically uh, enjoyable to read, even though it's depressing as hell is uh, my brand right there. That's the brand <laughs> of my newsletter, the brand of my book. Uh, it's yeah. like uh, a lot of sugar to put the medicine down. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely think of my newsletter as a modern day column when people ask me to describe it. Um, I think if the column were invented today, it would look a lot like Next Draft does, where it's a bunch of individual takes, occasional personal takes are about my personal life, and then a lot of links off to like what's happening on the internet in the world that day by way of uh, full news stories that you can go read. Um, so yeah, I, I, I did pattern that style that you're uh i'm happy that you feel you see in there um off of a column and trying to be a columnist um the other really cool thing about the internet even though these days we talk about the negatives of it so much rightfully so uh i didn't think it would ruin democracy when i first got online but um <laughs> is that it does allow you to form a product and a um output of that product tool uh, a tool and a product that reflect your skills really so like i love counter punching off of information so that's why i cover the news i mean i'm interested in news i'm addicted to news but also i this fits perfectly into my sort of particular writing uh sweet spot which is counter punching uh i like making jokes uh i like playing in a room that the joke is not necessarily expected. It's not like you're a stand-up comedian and everybody's there saying, okay, prove it to me. It's more like a wedding toast where it's like people are expecting the lowest common denominator. They're not necessarily expecting to laugh. So you can hit them with a joke only when you actually have a good joke as opposed to feeling you need to fill the space. Um, so I was able to take uh, sort of a, a suite of internet tools and build a product around what I do well. Um, which is otherwise possibly unmarketable pre-internet. You know, hey, I'm really good at making quick takes and jokes about the news. It's like, great, your family is going to be remarkably entertained for the rest of your life. But otherwise, <laughs> what are you going to do, you know? So yeah. uh, that's been lucky for me. My, the timing of all this has been really lucky for me. Do you ever feel like you, you joked that you didn't know the internet was going to ruin democracy? Do, do you ever feel like things lined up really well for you personally, but that same configuration is kind of detrimental to most other people. In other words, you have a set of skills that interfaces really well with these technological developments, but the technological developments themselves are corrosive to democracy and the environment and everything else. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I feel that every day, really. Um, I mean, because of the side of democracy I'm on, which I would call pro-democracy, uh, it, it 
it's a negative. That part of it is a negative for me too. But on the broader, uh, you know, the broader scheme of uh, American society, certainly technology left a lot of people behind. Uh, it's expanded the economic divide, which is pretty obviously the number one threat to our democracy more than Fox News, more than Facebook or whatever else. You know, it's this huge divide and the huge rage that we have towards each other. So I, I think like 2020 technology sort of uh, puts a magnifying glass or a, holds a mirror up to the worst of our flaws. Um, but it also provides these tools to amplify those flaws uh, to the benefit of a very few, uh, whether that's a very few financially that are making money off of the rage or whether that's a very few politically that are able to uh, establish minority rule, basically, or pass laws that are wildly unpopular among a majority of people. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there, there's endless downsides to what we've built and I think it's really important to talk about those downsides because otherwise we don't fix them. That's the whole point of uh, news is to, uh, I think, sure, you want to have positive stories, but you also want to show what's broken so that people are have an impetus to fix it. Um, but there's also, of course, a lot of great things about the internet. And both were in full display during 2020, which is what made it such an interesting time. It was absolutely imperative. It saved families kids, social lives, development, school, being able to work, the economy, you know, imagine all of these things. Imagine quarantine without the internet. It would have been an absolute epic disaster that we can't even imagine. And yet, um, it was also being used at the exact same time um, to spread disinformation that may made and makes the pandemic last longer. Um, it's used to spread fake news and false information that is negative for democracy uh, yeah. and distorts reality. So both of those things were happening at once. It was both mandatory and horrible at the same time. So how do you distinguish between real news and fake news? I mean, this has to be at the foundation of what you do every day. When you look at, you know, Judith Miller's reporting in the New York Times that led the United States into invading Iraq, for example, right? Like Washington Post does the same shit. Now, they're not as obvious or consistent as some other, you know, uh, news sources, if we even call them news sources. But how do you know? How do you judge like this Hunter Biden laptop thing is back in, in the news again? Is that real or not? I'm having trouble figuring out what A, is it real and B, does it matter? Yeah, well, I think it's, I can say pretty safely, it certainly doesn't matter. Um, is it real? I think you can sometimes look at the source. Um, I think in some ways there's a false equivalence that we have in the broad question about fake news. There actually isn't a sort of one universe that views one version of events and another universe that uh, is experiencing or reviewing another view of those same events. In America's news landscape today, we have a situation where one uh, group is actually trying to do good journalism, and that good journalism can often have mistakes. It can always be criticized. It's absolutely imperative that it gets criticized constantly from observers. Um, but the 
ultimate effort is actually to work with a set of facts that are agreed upon and visible with our own eyes. Then there's the false equivalence that has been created so effectively by Fox News um, by calling themselves news. And I can go into how the mainstream media allows them to do that with some of their behavior. But where it's very obvious that the content being shared by them is either manufactured or um, tweaked or invented uh, in order to fool people, trick people, enrage people. Uh, you know, the best example you can see of that is their vaccine nonsense during much of 2020. They've sort of shifted a tiny bit lately, but basically they've uh, supported and promoted people like DeSantis who don't want vaccine mandates. They've sort of questioned every quackery question about a vaccine they've put up. They've suggested that mandating vaccines is some form of totalitarianism and it's this democratic plot. And yet when you see the uh, memos that go out from the Fox News CEO to his own employees, he's got the same mandates. They're all vaccinated. It's entertainment. It's a trick. Um, so I think it's important, at least from my perspective, to differentiate between those two things. One group that is trying to create a false reality intentionally for political or monetary gain. And then the mainstream news, which is attempting to cover things in a pretty straightforward way. But of course, people have their weaknesses. People get stories wrong. And what you want to look for there is when they get the story wrong, do they hold themselves accountable? And are they held accountable by other participants in that media universe where reality is covered? Well, do just to push back a little bit, how do you account for corporate influence? How do you account for the fact that Archer Daniels Midland is, you know, supplying most of the money to keep, you know, the news hour on PBS running? How does that affect their coverage of food supply and industrial agriculture and, you know, runoff from pig farms in South Carolina and so on? I mean, there is a bias in mainstream news as well. It's just pro-corporate, pro-status quo, isn't it? I mean, there's definitely bias in news. There's no doubt about it. My, my, my take on this is though we have to separate bias from intentionally creating false stories for personal gain. Mm. There's right. a big difference between those two. Do we expect every news site to cover everything the way we want them to? No chance. But I go to 75 or so sites a day that some people would call mainstream news sites. I call them news sites. And they're attempting to tell a real story. Of course, there might be pressures, uh, financial pressures at the corporate level. But in general, those reporters are out there trying to tell the real stories as best they can. And if you cut across all 75 of those and pick the stories that are people mostly agree on, or maybe an outsider, outlandish, or I'm sorry, an outlier uh, that seems accurate, that somebody got the better story. I think you're going to get a pretty good idea of what the broad trends are in America. Does mm. that mean you should believe every word that you read, or especially the tone and tenor of every word you believe about something? Definitely not. I mean, I've always said, I used to cover only tech news, and I always said, um, Everybody believes um, 
a news story is totally accurate except the people who that story is about. Right. Nobody, <laughs> nobody can get your business or your school or whatever yeah. in a simple, in a simple uh, article. Also, there's trends that I call it media momentum. You know, media momentum just drives a ton of groupthink and a ton of uh, similar takes and a similar focus on similar stories. We saw that bright and clear during the Afghanistan withdrawal. Here was a story that was, I wouldn't say ignored because the media was covering the story, but it was back page news about what was going on in Afghanistan for the last except for a few exceptions, for the last 10 to 15 years. Suddenly, when the withdrawal came, that news story was covered in a complete vacuum. Um, like, of course, there was going to be a mess when we pulled out of this kind of a war. Uh, of course, there's a chance that people will die when you're doing a withdrawal. It was a tragedy. The 12 people, Americans who died, and the 170 Afghans who were ignored by American media who died during that suicide bombing. It's, of course, a tragic story. But we had thousands of American service personnel killed in the 20 years before that. And to pretend that that's not part of the broader story uh, yeah. is sort of a joke. So that sort of groupthink, and we can see this with, um, you know, uh, this social media woman who sadly was murdered and now it's everywhere on the media well we we had like i think in 2020 there were about a thousand kids who died of gunshot wounds kids in america like murder is america's pastime so how is it that one murder is gaining so much steam in the uh, in the media now the media will write 42 articles explaining that the reason it's such a huge story is because she was a social media personality it sort of gathered the momentum that we as viewers of crime shows and crime podcasts uh are into these days and it rolled out the facts of the case roll out in real time so it's so engrossing that's true but that explains why you and i might be into that story i'm not but that explains why a lot of people are but that doesn't explain why mainstream media is covering that story like it's a massive story when there have probably been 52 murders in the three days of the last three days of coverage that are equally but big how, news how many of those murder victims were cute 22 year old blondes though right let's that's be a, honest no that's absolutely a, f a factor in it I, i'd say there's probably are some that are that didn't have all these other factors but there's there's yeah. no doubt that that's that's a piece of it for sure um the but the piece that I think is a broader um, issue with the news is that you know journalists live on social media they live on Twitter to both gain information and to promote their own work but it's a very small universe and you see a ton of articles you know I invite your listeners as they're going through the news one day just look for how many articles suggest that there's a huge rift in American society or there's a huge story bubbling up, or there's a major pushback or promotion of some idea. And then as they read further, it's actually that this uh, trend is emerging from Twitter users. And it's a handful of Twitter users that already are on a platform that represent a handful of Amer Americans. So right. I worry about the trend of um, 
news bubbling up from the grassroots of internet users. You know, I'd rather see a situation where, yes, this one murder is being understandably obsessed over by a group of internet users, uh, especially those who followed the person, you know, to, I didn't follow her, but if somebody that I followed closely on Instagram or whatever was murdered in real time, I'm sure I would be upset and follow that story as well. But I just don't want that to be sucked up to the top of the news when there's a million other stories. So it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, as someone who lives in a van about half the year, I think another part of the story is the whole van life thing, right? The nomad right. land, the prevalence of like, Oh wait, is it safe to go out and, you know, live this romantic ideal of, you know, nomadic modern nomadism. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, listening to you talk, I was thinking about the similarities between, journalism and science and how, you know, there's a lot of corporate manipulation of, of medical research, particularly, but all kinds of research um, and vested interests and bias and, and the mistakes and all, all the other factors that you mentioned, but underlying it is the scientific method is an actual respect for demonstrable, repeatable, experimental results. And I think people lose sight of that, that yes, we can focus on all the mistakes as we should and all the distortions and, and bias, but it's the best we've got, you know, and you may say there is no journalistic objectivity, which I think is probably true, but aspiring to that is pretty much all we have as far as guiding, uh, you know, national dialogue. Right. And I would just uh, say that the doubt that you rightly connect to how we feel about science, the connection is that there are people sowing that doubt. It's not just that it exists. Um, right. So that that's the part that's so disturbing, you know. Um, as hard yeah. as it would be yeah. to be a journalist during 2020, I can't imagine being a scientist. What a nightmare that you're working day and night uh, to find a cure for something that's threatening humanity. And all of a sudden, halfway through the year, you find that you're being assigned bodyguards because of threats from people. Of course, it's not the majority of people, but I mean, we, I know people don't usually conflate uh, science and miracles, but we, we really have experienced a miracle. Uh, given the history of pandemics in the world, how fast we got a vaccine, what a miracle it was. It took the guy, the people at Moderna three days from the time they got a sample of the virus from China to create the vaccine that people are now able to put in their arms. I mean, we have to adjust, of course, how fast we can get things to market, but it really was like a miracle, and it was using a, a scientific technique that most people had written off. Uh, you know, it was basically one woman who really pushed this uh, in academia for years and got booted from one school after another because they didn't think she could achieve her goals. So um, it's sad that when we have these moments that we can't uh, – I call them bullhorn moments. You know, I was not a fan of George W. Bush, but – when the towers got knocked down, you know, we just celebrated the 20th anniversary. So we all saw the videos a million times again, which were better or worse. But, 
you know, when he had the bullhorn in his arm around the fire uh, fireman there among the wreckage and said, you know, the people who did this are going to hear from all of us. Um, you know, it was a moment that I felt we're all in this together, not just fighting somebody, but also comforting the people at Ground Zero and caring about that. what that must have been like in the common experience of everybody's been on a plane and thought, what if this is the one that goes down, you know? But to be on those planes, what human can't relate to how horrible that would be, right? But that's just gone from our, our society today, that unity. I don't think we can have a bullhorn moment because we just had something that has killed, you know, what, 200,000 times more people uh, I'm doing the math wrong, but 200 times more people than 9-11 or whatever. You know, we're up to 660,000 people. Uh, and we still can't come together and have a bullhorn moment and say, you know, this virus is going to fucking hear from us. For some reason, there's some people with a vested interest in saying, no, uh, that's just a liberal idea or whatever. You know, it's just totally crazy that this is political. And of all the things that I find depressing about 2020 and its aftershocks in 2021, that's really that missed opportunity um, is besides, of course, the death, you know, that missed opportunity and on an idea level is just really depresses me. And it was such a missed opportunity to say, man, we've been so divided for so long about so many petty issues, but here's something we can finally unify and say, Hey man, let's all do this together. Like, with the whole mask mandate thing, I've never put on a mask and thought, oh, my rights are being taken away. When I, when I walk down the street or into a supermarket and I see everybody wearing a mask, I feel like uh, uplifting feeling like this is cool that we're all doing something together, you know, that we're all fighting one fight. You know, if we can get fired up about our favorite baseball or football team, why can't we get fired up about our own team of humans fighting this, you know? Yeah. thing that is you know yeah yeah when the the mask thing started happening and i i talked about it on the podcast i've been doing this podcast nine years now and um i have never had blowback like i had when i talked about wearing masks and um and the, the weird thing about it is you know i respect I, I can even respect some people who voted for Trump the first time around, because I think a lot of what you and I are talking about here is, is there's an inherent corruption within any system, whether it be journalism or science or politics or corporatism or the military or whatever, the Catholic church. And a lot of that corruption has come to light in the last 10, 15, 20 years. And a lot of people now look at institutions and say, I don't trust them. They're liars. They lied to me about, you know, low fat being better for me. Now, 20, 30 years later, it turns out that research was funded by the fucking sugar council and it was all bullshit and they knew it was bullshit. And the research showing that it was bullshit was suppressed. You know, there, there are reasons for people to be suspicious of mainstream information coming at them. Um, and, you know, I, I look at people who voted for, for Obama and then voted for Trump, and I have a lot of sympathy. 
Obama said, change you can believe in, and it turned out to be incremental change at best. And meanwhile, whistleblower uh, prosecutions went up and, you know, deportations went up and drone attacks went up. So there's a lot of reason to be very disappointed in these institutions. Um, but man, mass is like, to me, that was just so obvious. You know, the virus is in your saliva droplets, masks block and greatly reduce the distribution of saliva droplets. So fucking wear a mask, you know, like there's no, to me, there's no relying on an expert opinion here. This is obvious, but man, I, I got a lot of blowback and it's, and it's something I wanted to ask you about on your newsletter. You're both curating and, and presenting in your unique voice, but also you editorialize You're pretty open about your perspective and what's true and what's not true and what's bullshit. And it's not just sort of implicit in what you choose to cover. You say it outright. Have you suffered blowback for your opinions on mass or other items? I mean, definitely everybody on the internet, you know, suffers blowback and that was uh, only enhanced or increased during the Trump era. Uh, when yelling at each other online was sort of a sport that was so popular that even our highest ranking leaders and corporate leaders participated in it. Um, but no, I don't pretend at all to be unbiased. Um, I almost laugh when people say you're supposed to be an unbiased source of news. I mean, my newsletter has my head on it and my name on it. So uh, <laughs> it's not at all unbiased, um, but it is biased towards truth ultimately and against lies um you know what you were saying about trump i totally relate to that i mean i feel very strongly that in order for trump to have tapped into a certain anger um you know let's take there's no doubt that he also tapped into latent racism and allowed it to become overt racism that's been clear from the birther movement right. that got him on the map all the way through the insurrection where people had Confederate flags and, uh, you know, Nazi emblems and were calling police, capital police, the N-word, right? Um, so we, I don't want to discount that. But there's also anger, disillusion, uh, suffering. And I understand that anger. I mean, if I lived along I-95 where the opiate crisis was at its worst and it was completely ignored, basically, by the government, for years, and then they finally decide to shut down all the pill mills, but with no support for the people who are now addicted, and El Chapo just goes, hey, great, marijuana is going out of business. I got a new product to sell. And that's just sort of allowed to happen and basically is not a huge discussion at the federal level. It was a huge story you know, to credit media where they deserve credit, but it wasn't a huge political issue. You know, I can understand that anger. If if I'm working in a coal, uh, you know, in the coal industry, and my grandfather died of black lung, and my dad has black lung, and I'm working in it, and I've been told my whole life, hey, yes, this is a risky business, and we shave a few years off our lives, but we are powering America. We make it so our industry can go and our military can go, and what you're doing is a laudable thing. Um, and then all of a sudden, you have a few people who make a billion bucks out of nowhere on some app. 
they're getting into alternative energies and they're telling you how coal is evil and the coal industry is terrible. I understand the rage there. Um, not, not, not that I'm pro coal. I, I want us to move, but let's move with the people who work in those industries and get them out of the mines and get them safer, but not belittle them, you know? And I can see when I go on television that Fargo is basically our our perception of how a lot of people in rural areas live, you know, and we're so mm-hmm. separated that it's easy for us to caricaturize each other, you know? So I understand the rage that people feel, but I, I definitely don't understand how that, the expression of that rage, like why was that rage uh, expressed and a person who's obviously a crook, a liar, a con artist, that part, is the part that is more perplexing to me. I mean, I've come to understand it after writing about it and studying it and looking at the psychology of it. But th- that's the only, yeah, I've never, I've never questioned. I feel like uh, our political relationship should be a lot like our, uh, almost like a marriage uh, where you can have a conversation with somebody about their anger, but you can't say they're wrong to be angry, right? If you tell your wife, mm. hey, your anger is not justified, you know, you're going to get punched in the face, right? rightfully so. So I don't want to tell anybody in America that their anger or their disillusion or their depression or their just being fed up with things. Uh, I think most of it's driven by the economic divide and the regional divides, which are so damaging. Um, but yeah, I don't tell people they shouldn't be angry. I get that, I, but I, what I don't get is why they picked somebody who wouldn't help that cause even a tiny bit. You know, none of those policies were helping anybody. Coal didn't do better under Trump. Poor people did worse under Trump. You know, it's guys like me. I I invest in internet startups. It's guys like me who did well under Trump financially. You know, not psychically, yeah. but financially. So that that part was the bummer. Yeah. I th- I I think people aren't really looking at policies. I think they're just looking at the show. Yeah. And the show is that Trump, you know, said, fuck you to the system. You know, you're all corrupt. You know, oh, Putin kills people. Well, we kill people, too. You know, like, that's true. Right. I mean, he says things that people were like, wow, he's a liar. But sometimes he says a truth that I've never heard anyone else say. And it gets, you know, I, I think it's the same reason Joe Rogan's so popular, right? It's he's a he's a loose cannon. He'll say whatever comes into his head, and people are dying for that, for yeah. this un unfiltered, unfocused, grouped, not careful um, utterance. Yeah, um, I, I totally, I totally agree with that, and I see why a guy like Joe Rogan might be popular. Um, the the, the scary part is that it jumped into actual world leadership, right? Like when Trump was, I'm a huge Howard Stern fan. And when Trump mm. used to be a guest on his show, you know, I mean, I thought he was an asshole, obviously, but he was, you know, no doubt about it. One of the best guests, you know, was yeah. what he said about Rosie O'Donnell nice was when he rated women nice. No, of course not. Uh, you know, it was especially by our current, standards totally unacceptable and by our even then probably unacceptable but was he an entertaining guest you know because he'd be willing to do that and didn't care if people said hey you broke a rule or whatever absolutely you know he is 
an incredible uh, candidate for court jester. You know, he would have been America's <laughs> greatest court jester. He just was not a candidate to be a president. You know, he was deeply, he is and was deeply mentally ill. I mean, the most interesting stuff you can read on Trump is go back and read. I think 27 psychologists wrote a book about all the mm. things they said were coming in 2016. It was published uh, related to Trump's symptomology. And it's like, absolutely all of it came true you know um yeah you know and my dad who was a holocaust survivor and not a uh raging liberal by any standards probably a, probably a republican for most of his life um he predicted almost everything that took place right up until trump wouldn't leave office and tried to uh, overturn the election you know he was predicting it all throughout 2000 20 you know people who had seen authoritarianism before knew what they were seeing with trump you know yeah it was funny that's why i think he should be a court jester it was all hilarious you know we had more fun than any of us have ever had on the internet during the trump era just going off you know and and society is i think starving for stories that we can share and all be talking about the same thing at the same time you know mm. the internet has really divided us into silos um you look at the emmys this week you know every show that wins is basically a show you have to pay for you know and the biggest winner or one of the biggest winners ted lasso you have to have apple tv specifically for it so you know you got to have some decent amount of uh extra income that you can spend on entertainment to even have seen these shows forget about whether you like them or not you know and we're time. divided everywhere uh we're divided yeah. in what media we watch we're divided in what news we read we're divided geographically we're divided on our ideas but here came trump and as bad as it felt there was something about having a show that we all knew every character we knew every move you could go up to anybody on the street, regardless of their political background, and strike up a conversation about what happened in the last five hours of the Trump story, and they would know exactly what you were talking about. You know, so right. there, there was this attraction to it, and I can see why people uh, probably have some withdrawals from that. For some, for some of us, it might have been so psychically damaging that this was happening to our country that we're, you know, would have given anything to end it, but we still watched it, you know. Um, yeah, and it was very good for, for media, right? I mean, uh, eyeballs on media increased dramatically during the Trump era, and now they're falling off pretty dramatically from what I've read. Yeah, yeah. Do you think – Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, you know, this leads into the next thing I wanted to ask you about. Do you think America is ungovernable? I mean, that's a big question, I guess. Uh, I think that – a lot of the anger divides and all that that we've seen, especially, you know, sort of bubble up in its earthquake of 2020, were there all along. You know, let me give you an example of the way I think about it. Um, I was talking to my publisher and my PR team, right? And they were saying, um, you know, about where we, if book tours can happen, which they probably won't be able to, but if they can, you know, we probably want to or focus our media on blue states and our book tours on blue states, right? And I said, you know, most states are like, there's some that are hugely, huge advantage to one side or the other, but most states, it's like a couple of percent, you know, three, four percent. It's enough to secure uh, a Senate seat, of course, but there's like, 
tons of people of uh, all political persuasions in all states, uh, and mm. not also. I want my book to be read by people who don't share my political persuasion, you know. But I think, um, I think it's governable. Uh, but it's this little pieces at the edge that just slipped over the edge, you know. I think the stuff that bubbled over from 2016 and the rage that exploded due to a bunch of factors. It wasn't just Trump. I really do think it's this economic divide and the way we're treated each other. And really the geographic divide, which is related to the economic divide, is such a huge factor, you know. America will be much more governable when we just talk to each other instead of uh, yelling at caricatures of each other. Um, you know, I've never well, hated – I've never ha- – well, I, somehow we have to get back to actually interacting with each other. Like, I've never mm. hated anybody in real life as much as I hate the caricature of a Trump voter. And I'm 100% mm. sure that in most cases, uh, if I was hanging out with that person, which of course I have, you know, whether I'm knowing it or not, uh, the things that bind us are probably much bigger than the things that don't. And we can certainly find things that we both care about that we can talk about in common. You know, I, I coached a little league team with a guy who's definitely would be a Trump voter. Uh, he's was a, he was a sheriff. Uh, he felt that he saw a side of, you know, sort of wealthy Marin County where I live that the rest, the average citizen didn't see and didn't understand um, and was way too liberal and weak on crime and all that stuff. And, Hey, I can relate to how he feels. He's spending his nights uh, risking his life, and I'm spending my life watching, you know, girls on HBO. I get it. He's going to have a different view than I have, and he feels differently about uh, guns than I do. But we both care deeply about winning the goddamn Little League game that we were coaching, uh, and our our hate for uh, the other coaches that would taunt us or you know, do weird things, you know, <laughs> or parents that would criticize us or whatever, you know, the normal things that irritate us in life was a thousand times stronger than this, you know? And, uh, and frankly, I appreciated the fact that no other coach and no parent would ever really get in our faces because everybody knew my co-coach was like armed to the teeth, you know, it's like, <laughs> come on, bring it on, dude. Uh, so, I mean, we joked about our differences. That's another thing that's just gone, you know, especially this yeah. is on the liberal side. You can't yeah. joke about differences. You can't say, okay, I'm a little crazy too. You know what I mean? I think that's why you see today, my kids' generation, you know, 13 to 15, they just can't get enough of the office. They can't get enough of uh, modern family. You know, not that these shows were like terrible. They were satires, especially The Office. Michael Scott was the butt of the joke. His He was like Archie Bunker, you know? The yeah. fact that he thought these things that were, you know, either borderline racist or gender, you know, stereotyping or saying that's what she said, like you brought up my, uh, my riff on that at the beginning. You know, that was – the point was that he was a joke and that's what made it funny, you know? Could that show come yeah. out today or could Modern Family – you know, I – my my wife is Samoan. My kids are Samoan. Uh, in our extended family, we have, um, you know, a black preacher, a couple of Muslims, uh, you know, some same gender uh, couples, uh, you name it. You know, we have the kaleidoscope of America. And when we're together, we joke about every kind of offensive thing you can think of with each other, you know, much like the cast of Modern Family did, you know. 
I'm not saying that the benefits of uh, of stopping some of that kind of talk are not don't outweigh uh, you know the negatives. It's great that we're being more sensitive about all those issues, but I worry that it also extends to our political relationship with each other. Um, we're so angry and so sensitive. You know, there's a there's a chance. Um, you know, the other guy has a point. And there's a chance that in one or two areas, I'm sort of a dick, you know? And that, like, happens when you interact in person. But those in-person interactions, you know, I mentioned Little League. And, and when I was a kid, everybody in our extended town was on the same teams, you know? So you interacted all the time with people regardless of their job or their socioeconomic mm -hmm. status, you know? Uh, a ton of kids like on my football team, their dads worked at San Quentin. So we'd like literally sometimes have a party at somebody's house uh, behind the first gate where the dad lived, you know, because he was a guard or whatever. Um, today, I don't think those exchanges happen as much. There's, you know, if you're decent at a sport, you pay a few grand if you have the money and your kids on the travel ball team. Um, every Every area where we could connect, we stopped connecting, you know. Uh, if you have a certain amount of money, you go to the dollar store. If you have a little more money, you go to Target. You know, if you have something in between, you go to Walmart. Um, if you don't want to interact at all, you just order from Amazon and wait by your house. But the interactions um, are gone. And when you have those interactions gone, that vacuum creates a place where people can create characterizations of you that are false. So the thing that the average Trump voter would despise about me, uh, I'm sure it's as false as the things that I despise most about them. But if we just got together, it'd be like, okay, you know, yeah, he, I don't agree with this guy about that. I mean, I don't agree. Friends don't agree with each other. You know what I mean? It's the way yeah. it is. We, we talk behind each other's backs and give each other shit, you know, but that's, that's a whole different thing from creating these characters. I mean, I have a theory that uh, is pretty far from, you know, Bay Area Little Leagues, but both of my parents were Holocaust survivors. And um, in the early days when they would try to message how terrible the Jews were, there was this one factor that made it difficult to get the message through, although it obviously got through to plenty of people, which was your neighbor might have been a Jew or your coworker might have been a Jew. So you're like, yeah, you're saying all these things about them, but yet this guy I know and have interacted with for the last 20 years and eats dinner at my house uh, doesn't share the characteristics that you're describing. So, mm. you know, ghettoization um, of the Jews, you know, as World War II picked up was like a huge messaging move in addition to a huge physical and terrible, of course, move, you know, once they were out of sight and out of mind, now it becomes much easier to message uh, whatever you want about them and make people yeah. not feel bad about what was happening to them. So I feel like on a obvious, I'm not comparing modern day America to uh, the Holocaust in any way, but I do think this separation is one of the most dangerous things happening in America today. Yeah, it's almost like um, single crop agriculture invites pestilence in a way that mixed forest doesn't, right? When everything's the same, 
something bad, whether it's a fungus or a bad idea about others, can spread unopposed very yeah. quickly. Yeah, um, like COVID. You know, what you were talking, I was thinking, you know, you're talking about humor and, and how humor has been, or, or any kind of risque humor anyways, being pushed out of the the mainstream media. I was thinking about the movie Tropic Thunder. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Talk about a movie that couldn't be made today. And that's not from the seventies. That's, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 years. Um, but just all the off color, <laughs> the off colors, it's maybe the wrong word. Cause there's, remember there's Robert Downey Jr. Right. in blackface and, right. and just like the crazy things that they did in that movie. And may, you know, Tom Cruise and, uh, you know, Matthew McConaughey, all these major stars. Uh, risk their careers to be in that movie. But then it, that led me to thinking about Vietnam and how the veterans of Vietnam are, are old and or dying now, right? The guys who came back from that. And that was really the last time that the kind of social mixing that you're talking about probably happened in American society was the draft in the Vietnam War. Since then, it's all volunteers, so it's all poor guys um, you know, who don't have other options from, you know, bumfuck Texas, that's all, that's all they got, right? Or get a job at the dollar store. Um, so that kind of mixing, that kind of like, wait a minute, I know, you know, like I served in a platoon with black dudes from the inner city and they were good guys and they saved my life, you know, like that kind of interaction that you're talking about probably hasn't happened since 1969, 70, 71, somewhere in there. Yeah. I mean, I, I push back a little bit on um, what type of people join the military and that it's not, you know, some of our best and brightest, obviously, and some of my really good friends are, um, you know, could have any job at any Silicon Valley firm and be, you know, making millions a year, but choose to sacrifice for America. And I'm really moved by people who do that. But certainly uh, in the Vietnam War, where it was a war that a lot of people didn't understand and, uh, you know, we're only drafting, um, really we were drafting even then a certain segment of America. And that's what I, I you know, even when I look at the, um, the anti-war movement, which I think if somebody said, okay, today you're a liberal, so you'd be part of that, you know? I mean, it really kicked up big time once you could be drafted even if you were in or had gone to college. That's when it right. really went crazy, you know? Uh, before yeah. that, it was sort of an other story. Um, so yeah, the, the more we can not do that, you know, the more we can try to understand. I mean, I, I admit that um, I probably would have a similar um, description of the average person who had to get drafted or had to go to the military because it was their last option. Um, had I not known um, these guys that I've met in the last few years that are either were Navy SEALs or work at the Pentagon or whatever, and their sacrifice and love of America, which I have also, um, but their sacrifice and what I know it does to their families and the pressures to say, you know, their wives know that if they quit tomorrow, they could be in a much bigger house and their kids could be going to private schools. I mean, these guys are all stars that are in high demand, you know? Um, 
I'm also inspired by that. But that's another thing that it's it it was helpful for me to know and interact with people with a different background from mine to understand what made them tick, you know, and then to have not only a increased respect for them, but also to find this commonality with them, you know, that I'm not just impressed or thankful for their sacrifice. I'm like moved by it because um, I feel that way about America also. So you think America is still a force for good in the world and that these SEALs who are deploying to Yemen and Somalia are having a positive impact on those societies? Oh, no. I, it's hard to say that somebody deploying someplace is having a positive impact, you know, uh, especially when we've seen what happened in Afghanistan. But, um, but I think that those people that are doing that are making sacrifices. I think the, sale, the SEALs and uh, former service members who self-deployed to Afghanistan during the withdrawal and rescued families uh, and risked their lives for those families that had helped them, I think they're a force for good. Do we always put our best foot forward in the world? Hell no. You know, of course there's, I'm a critic of America, but I, 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 you know, I prefer it to the alternative, definitely. Although the idea of living in a country that was really separate from international uh, spats and wars and crises, which does sound pretty cool after the last few years, you know? Yeah, um, I lived in Spain for 20 years. So my take on America is um, in many ways that of a foreigner, even though I, I was born and raised in the U.S., but I've been out of the country most of my adult life. Um, and yeah, it, it is, I mean, I'm in Guatemala right now as we speak, in oh, fact. Nice. Um, yeah, it's, it's confusing. You, you posted something, and this is tangentially related. You said that the Democrats reminded you of Cal football, where you <laughs> expect to lose, but you enjoy watching the game anyway. I, I, I watched the game. Always with hope. I watched the game. Hopefully I didn't say enjoy. <laughs> I've never enjoyed either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to me, I've always thought of the Democrats as the Washington generals. Their job is to make it seem like a game against the Globetrotters, but they're not supposed to win because what you've got is corporate control, obviously, and corporate control uh, hidden a little bit. And I think I'm a little more cynical about American politics than you are. Uh, you know, to me, it just looks like it's supposed to seem like uh, there's a chance. And at the last minute, it all falls apart uh, pretty yeah. much every time. Yeah, I'm just to correct one thing. I'm deeply cynical about American politics. I'm I feel a love for America and Americans. I don't feel a love for our political system or, mm. um, you know, I, for example, I never watch any of the Sunday morning shows when politicians go on and talk, you know, that said, I know a few politicians who are legitimately working in the business because they want to do good for people. Of course, you have to have a little narcissism and want to be famous and want to be known, you know, that's, 
that goes along with what you and I are doing right now also, right? Who the hell would be interested in what we have to say? We have to believe that they are, otherwise we wouldn't be out here every day, right? So politicians have that too, probably more so in this age of social media. But some of them do good stuff. But yeah, there's no doubt the the corporate influence um, and phoniness, really, when it comes to politics is on full display every day for anybody who wants to look at it, you know. Um, you know, the yeah, I think that stuff is covered a lot by the media if you want to look for it, you know. I mean, we know that because people are digging those stories up and whether it's Indies yeah. like Judd Lagoom, who has a good uh, newsletter who really digs in, you know, you see people that are saying all the right things about Black Lives Matter, but they're giving money to politicians who are, you know, posing with Confederate flags, you know, it's a problem. <laughs> um, right. You can see, yeah. I mean, it's a systemic problem, really, as opposed to people being evil necessarily, you know? We have a system where you lobby for stuff, you know? Look, I mean, before I started doing podcasts and interviews for my book, you know, I got in a room with a bunch of PR people and said, okay, what's our best hook? Uh, what's our best targets to go after to move the most product, right? That's like everything you see on the news or a lot of it, you know, everything somebody says on the news is goes through a similar filter, um, and politics even more so. Um, yeah, but yeah, I just I'm definitely cynical and depressed endlessly about American politics. I don't think that the Harlem Globetrotters would uh, want to be um, aligned with the GOP in your analogy. That's the one thing <laughs> I think they'd be pretty pissed about that. Fair point. Fair point. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. How, you know, you and I have have a lot of things in common here. I my last book is called Civilized to Death. Uh, came out two years ago, and Harper no is uh, Simon and Schuster, and uh, and it was hard because my writing style. I I try to be amusing. I try to. I my feeling about writing is like I want to be that professor you had in high school or college who you enjoyed going to class, even though it was hard and you learned things while you were laughing. And, you know, there was, it's definitely an entertainment uh, component to, to writing the way I do it. And obviously the way you do it, but it's hard when what you're conveying is, is difficult material. I mean, my book is arguing that civilization has been a colossal mistake for our species. Um, that's a pretty hard argument to make amusing, you know? Um, so it was a hard book for me to write. Yeah. Were you, did you find that when you were writing, like you're trying to be funny and you're trying to keep it light in a way, but the material itself is dragging you to the bottom of the ocean? Uh, I would have felt that way if that wasn't what I had had to practice doing for four years up until I mm. started writing the book. Um, you know, and the truth is, I, I talk a lot about it in my book. It, there were things that were, aside from me trying to make them funny, there were things that happened in 2020 that were undeniably and ridiculously hilarious. You know, I mean, Donald Trump's handling of, uh, COVID, you know, was like a uh, medical whoopee cushion, you know? 
I mean, he said to put, uh, you know, disinfectant in your veins, you know? I mean, I didn't write that joke. Yeah, he wrote that joke. I didn't write it. Uh, Rudy giving his uh, press conference out in front of a landscaping company. I didn't write the joke. He wrote the joke, you know? But yeah. so I think there's there's two types of humor. There's one that's that, that's certainly in my book, you know, the hilarity and craziness of the year. And you have to just laugh, you know? I mean, us running out of toilet paper, you know, it's uh, – my wife had just signed up for Amazon a month before monthly toilet paper deliveries. And she forgot she did it because this was pre-pandemic. And it came, like, in the first month of the pandemic. And we had, like, 28 rolls. And we're, like, going to families' houses and leaving them on the doorstep with their rubber gloves. <laughs> and it was like we were fucking conquering heroes, you know? So there was a lot of humor and funniness to it. And things that were ridiculous or painful, we tried to make funny because that's human nature, you know? And everybody wants to go viral, mm. right? So you want to have the best Trump joke, just like you want to have the best joke about the Super Bowl halftime jo- show or whatever it is, because everybody's talking about the same thing at the same time. So if you have personalities like ours, you want to make the best joke or make the most insightful comment or whatever. But there is a danger to that type of laughter, especially um, when it comes to big time government affairs. You know, I'll never forget um, in 2016, I think it was um, maybe a little later, uh, my dad, who, as I said, was a survived the Holocaust and was like only guy in his town to survive, uh, joined the partisans and like blew up trains for like four years and uh, came to America and made it big, total self-made man. You know, he said very early on, you know, I said, you know, David, a lot of people laughed at Hitler when I was a kid, you know, and that really made me think, you know, like this. Mm-hmm. Laughter is uh, sort of a salve for some things, but it can distract you from how incredibly serious things are. And the other piece of it is that we really see during the COVID thing, which is the tragic part of all this, that this sort of laughable era uh, coincided with this deadly virus, is that the exact same stuff that you and I were laughing at, other people took so seriously that they were willing to risk their lives and actually die for. You know, we've got tons of reports. We still do, but certainly during 2020, there were endless reports of people who were being intubated and still insisting this is a democratic mm-hmm. hoax. I'm not really sick, you know, or I'm sick from something else, or you you infected me to the doctor, yeah. you know. So that that's how seriously. So that that's really what I one thing I didn't think of living 2020 and writing about it in real time that I really thought deeply about while I pulled back and was writing the book about all these ridiculous moments that, wow, what could have been more ridiculous than Rudy Giuliani in front of uh, Four Seasons Landscaping at the very moment the election was decided by the three major networks? Nothing. It was the most absurd, crazy thing. Four Seasons Total Landscaping sold a zillion t-shirts you know it was just unbelievable but yet the arguments that rudy giuliani were making on that day still are poisoning american politics so who's having the last laugh here you know that's what i really worry about so i really thought a lot about humor as it relates to um this kind of slide towards authoritarianism which is 
people might think that sounds extreme, but that is what happened. And that is what's happening now, 100%. This is how exactly how it works. These pages are being taken right out of authoritarian handbooks. It's so perfect. It's so obvious. Um, and it's so effective as it has been elsewhere, you know? The other thing my dad so, said that makes sorry. Yeah. The other thing my dad said that yeah. makes me think of this is, you know, one day we were going to lunch, and um, this was probably the last week before we all got quarantined. And he was complaining that like people weren't out in the streets, you know, like how can they take this nonsense, you know? And I said, well, I think people that are in my generation and younger in America and just in America in general, just think like, well, this is crazy. This is dangerous, but it can't happen here, you know? And he just stopped in his tracks. We were walking through the restaurant and he looked at me and said, you think when I was a kid, we thought that it could happen there? You know? And I really thought, damn, this is not a joke. Journalists like Ann Applebaum who have seen this before and were warning us about it. And, you know, hundreds of other journalists that were warning us about it. Um, it wasn't a joke. It's not a joke now either. It's very serious business. It it did happen here, and it is happening here, you know. And it's pretty scary. And I think people need to wake up. Uh, not it's not just a political fight. It's just more of an ethical and community fight. It's like to take back the messaging away from self interested politicians. You know, I always think like the broadband is like the greatest story people can use to come together. Broadband is this thing that we should all by now in America have high-speed bandwidth in our homes. And we saw during the pandemic, people had been warning about that for years, you know? And during the pandemic, rural students got totally slammed because they didn't have high-speed internet during the pandemic. And inner-city kids who didn't have computers even in some cases uh, and certainly didn't have access to high-speed bandwidth, also got slammed. Well, if the, those two groups came together, it would create an absolutely unstoppable political force in America, and we'd have broadband. You know, you couldn't defeat that force. They actually are aligned, you know? Yeah. It, ec economically, people who think they hate each other are actually remarkably aligned. But there's a... To your point about corporate control, you know, it's all economic, politically, and I'd, I'd say it has to do with certain people more about getting voted or elected with a minority of uh, supporters, but it relates to that economic divide that the same people are getting screwed over by dividing us. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I wish somebody well, listen, would have the guts to do, say that about broadband and see if people don't come together. Yeah, broadband and uh, universal health care and, you know, child care. I mean, all those things that appeal to, you know, poor whites, blacks, immigrants, they're all divided against each other. They're all in the same voting block if, if they would realize it. But, of course, yeah. a lot of people are working very hard to convince them they're not. Yeah. Um, let me just end by asking you what I, I thought it would be the first question, which is uh, to tell the story about the origins of your strange title, Please Scream Inside Your Heart. Uh, sure. Uh, it was about, I think, July of 2020 when um, there was a pretty famous amusement park called Fuji Q Highland. 
uh, in the shadow of Mount Fuji that had reopened. And people there were, of course, wearing masks. Uh, I don't know if you've been to Japan, but even before the pandemic, a ton of people, if you're on the subway or walking down the street, wore masks because of the bird flu. And frankly, mm. it makes sense to wear it even during cold and flu season here, as we've seen. But if we think we get hate now, let's just bring that up. <laughs> but anyway, so people were wearing their masks with no problem at the Fuji Q amusement park, but they were also screaming on the roller coasters. And so um, the executives there were worried about that and the health uh, folks uh, in Tokyo. So they put up signs and made a rule that you were allowed to ride, but not allowed to yell on the ride. So it sort of became a mini meme or joke on Japanese media that it was impossible, obviously, to not scream, especially on this one ride. I think it was called the Fujiyama roller coaster. Um, so the executives at the park had two of their uh, top employees uh, dressed in suit and tie and with a webcam facing them ride the roller coaster in complete stoic silence without a hair out of place. <laughs> and they wrote it without moving their lips at all. And at the end, or well, I guess their lips were covered by a mask, but they didn't scream. And at the end uh, of the ride, a sign, a message came up and said, please scream inside your heart. And that became a sort of a, one of a billion memes that went crazy and people made t-shirts and all that. And it was everywhere for a day or two and then disappeared. But I just thought it was um, sort of a, an idea that connected a lot of things in terms of the humor of the year, the craziness of the year, uh, the impossibility of what we were being asked to do. Mm. And the, also just the rage that all of us felt and felt sort of locked in our houses, unable to really let out. So right. that was sort of the idea of the book is, you know, you held it in long enough. So come on this ride with me. Uh, the book sort of follows a roller coaster ride theme actually throughout the book. So each chapter uh, has a title that is part of a roller coaster ride. And I try to make uh -huh. it really fast also. And, mm. uh, probably equally scary and anxiety inducing as uh the average roller coaster also so i thought this no. would be a good way to let people let the scream out right <laughs> right is there a subtitle uh the subtitle is breaking news and nervous breakdowns in the year that wouldn't end yeah, so all right it's, it's a lot good. about it's a lot about the news a lot of the stuff we've discussed today has uh, touched upon um critiques of mainstream media as well and sort of a story of how i became a news addict uh based on my relationship growing up with my parents and mm. um how everybody's news addiction got out of hand in 2020 which it really did uh even people who right. weren't into the news that i know couldn't stop talking about it. it was actually ruining their lives in some ways but i sort of explain how we got there in terms of what the media was doing and what technologies were emerging and how we ended up with this perfect storm in 2020. Where did your dad grow up? Uh, I mean, my dad grew up in a little town called Biala Podlaska uh, in Poland. In Poland. Yeah. Okay. But then yeah, he, I was wondering. Yeah. It moved a lot after that. Once the war started, he was on the move. Right. But he, he has a book also that's called Taking Risks. That's actually mm -hmm. an amazing. There's a ton about my dad in the book. Uh, and he has a book about his life called Taking Risks. He has a had quite an amazing uh, cinema, cinema, uh, cinematic life that was almost impossible to believe as you're reading it. Uh, and it's taught at a few universities. But the, one of my um, 
colleagues, I guess I would say, Dahlia Lithwick, who writes for Slate, she blurbed my book and uh, she sort of described what it was about and why it was important. And then in the end, she said it's uh, also a love letter to his own dad and people mm. who know democracy is something you have to fight for and not just accept or enjoy. And uh, yeah, her line was probably better than any line I wrote in my own book because that really it really is a lot about that. It's it's hard to right. sort of put that all on the book cover, but it's just a it's just as much about um, my parents and their take on what happened um, in 2020 from their good. perspective. You know, so I was that's hoping the part that's most important to me actually. Oh, good. Yeah, I I didn't want to just come out and say it and and put you in a bad spot, but I was hoping that that you told their story in the book because. Just the hints you've, the little references you've made to them sound really interesting and important. Yeah, I, I do in my newsletter also. I, I know you're a new subscriber, but other people certainly that read it during 2020, uh, I probably quoted my dad about 82 times or something like that. So I I just feel there's uh, certain people that really had a good perspective on what was happening in 2020. And if I said certain things, you'd be like, oh my God, they're crazy liberals or whatever. But I mean, when I first started writing my book, my dad was just told, "You're not going to make it too liberal, right?" So he was not a he was not a snowflake by any means. You know, yeah. I'm yeah. he's a he, he survived because of a gun, and I I'm here because of one. So uh, mm. I I definitely get that across in the book, and it's a lot about what it was like growing up in a house with two Holocaust survivors, for better or worse. Um, your dad died recently. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, he he was one of the victims of 2020, not not COVID, but uh, yeah, he passed away at the end of the year. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, my dad died three years ago. I'm still. I, I don't think you ever really get past it. But yeah, um, no, you probably should. It's you know? it's a great luxury to grieve someone you can respect and love. You know, it's. I, I really feel a lot of compassion for people who look in the mirror and see their dad and don't like what they see. Yeah. That uh, must be very hard. Anyway, yeah. Dave Pell, thank you, dude. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading the book. Oh, it's, thanks a lot. Uh, I like your style and, and the way you think. And you're obviously, you put a lot of work into what you do. And I, I really appreciate that. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal, doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in 
your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say Headed for a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big deal If you wanna be free Say what you wanna feel Spend the night with me Take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground